What's inside the mind of a mass shooter? What kind of psychological factors are at play? And do things like marijuana, video games, and social media play a role? Our guest today, brilliant psychologist Dr. Nicholas Carderis, says... Yes, these things are factors. So he's going to pull back the curtain to reveal what goes on behind the scenes before these mass shootings, what we can do to try to prevent these shootings from happening again from a psychological and societal perspective. And tomorrow he'll actually be back to discuss the damaging effects of social media overall. You will not want to miss that conversation or this one, which is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout. That's GoodRanchers.com. Code Allie. Okay, before we get into that fascinating conversation with Dr. Cardaris, I do want to give you a little bit of an update on the shooting that happened over the weekend. You can listen to yesterday's. We gave a summary of um, what we know so far, but there's a little bit of a development, uh, both in who the victims are and in who the shooter is. And particularly the profile of the shooter is very relevant to the conversation that we're about to have with this psychologist. So first, though, I want to honor the victims. We've got 20-year-old 20, 20 Christian LaCour. He was an on-duty security guard at the outlet mall where the shooting occurred. So he was taken out perhaps strategically. And then I'm not really probably going to be able to pronounce this name, but 27-year-old Ash Ashwarya uh, Tadakonda was an engineer who moved to the U.S. five years ago. Um, her family is still living in India. I can't imagine how they are feeling getting this news. I'm sure that she came to America for a better life, thinking that she would be safer here. Um, then there's Elio, Elio Kumana Rivas, um, born in Dallas, and that's really all we know. Two elementary school sisters from the Wiley Independent School District have been identified as victims. Daniela Mendoza, a fourth grader, Sophia Mendoza, um, a second grader, and their mother is in the hospital in critical condition. Again, can you just imagine being in the hospital and waking up to the news of your babies being gone? And then someone else who is in the hospital is this six-year-old um, six named William Song. And as I said yesterday, this family, um, they their kids attend the school that actually was like the rival Christian high school to my school going up and so growing up. So I, I don't know them personally at all, but I know some people in the area who do know them. It's a, you know, it's a very small world, especially the Christian community. And apparently they were just this amazing, sweet family. And so William Song is in the hospital. He is the only survivor surviving member of this mass murder. Uh, Cho Kyu Song um, and King Xing Young. Um, that's the two children. So I, I'm not actually sure what the last name is of William. I think their last names are actually Young. And then their three-year-old child um, was also killed. And so the six-year-old is the only one surviving. There's a GoFundMe set up for the family. Um, it had a goal of $50,000 just to try to help pay for the medical bills, the funeral costs, things like that. It's actually almost raised a million dollars as of last night, which is pretty incredible. And you know what? They need it. Like I'm just, and I'm just praying for this boy. And I ask for you too, as well. Like pray that this boy finds love and support. I'm sure that he has other family members. They're a Korean family member or a Korean family. So I don't know if their family is still in Korea, if they've been in America for a long time. But I just hope and pray that he has close family members that take him in, that make him feel like a son um, and that he finds purpose and belonging and that he knows who he is in Christ. And uh, this was a Christian family. And I thank the Lord for that. I'm sure that somehow God will use this devastating circumstance, this awful tragedy to bring glory to himself and to win hearts and souls. And I pray that one of those hearts is the heart of William. I pray that he would run after Jesus all the days of his life. And I'm just oh, holding back tears. I'm so sad for him. I'm so sad for him. He doesn't get his mom when he is recovering. He doesn't get comforted by his parents. He doesn't get to play with his brother anymore. Ugh. So just pray for him. Pray for him. This is an awful tragedy. Uh, we know a little bit more uh, about the shooter now. So it was assumed by the media very quickly over the weekend that uh, this person who I've told you I'm not going to say his name, but he... Uh, 
that he had neo-Nazi sympathies, that he was a white supremacist. And we pointed out how strange it was that the media was running with this narrative so quickly without having any firm substantiation of those things yet. And it wasn't just that they were calling him a white supremacist. They were saying that this is a right-wing belief, that he was a right-wing extremist who was also this white supremacist neo-Nazi. Everyone thought it was very strange because he's very obviously Hispanic, has a very obviously um, Hispanic name. As we pointed out uh, yesterday, he uh, was removed from the army in 2008 for mental health reasons, and uh, he has been a security guard since then. And so that's really all we knew. But now more investigations have uncovered that what appears to be his social media profile on a Russian social media website called Odd. Odnoklasniki, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, had lots of postings of uh, Nazi symbols. There were allegedly some pictures that he posted with Nazi tattoos. Um, but some people are also pointing out that it's very strange that he had this Russian social media profile, that he didn't have any followers, that the profile seems to have been made very recently. Um, Ian Miles Shong, he's been someone who has been posting about this on Twitter. And he just says that the circumstances surrounding this are very strange. They're very unusual. If you look at some of the pictures that are apparently on this Russian social media profile of this Hispanic Texan neo-Nazi, a lot of the pictures are not pictures that he actually took. They're like Mexicans dressed in Nazi guard that were taken from a uh, white supremacist uh, Reddit subreddit um, that were then placed on his page. And so that doesn't necessarily debunk it. People are just saying that this is odd. It's also odd that this person apparently named Tim Pool and libs of TikTok as inspiration. I mean, Tim Pool is not some like diehard conservative. You could consider him certainly center right, but that's a strange and random inspiration for white supremacy. Certainly libs of TikTok isn't. I mean, she's Jewish herself. White supremacist do not like Jewish people. And then he also praised, apparently, the Nashville shooter a couple weeks ago, who we know was a woman or a girl identifying as the opposite sex. And so there are just a lot of questions about the validity of the social media page, how quickly the media are jumping on it. And again, it's not like we have to defend someone against accusations of white supremacy if it's true. However, uh, tying it to the right wing or tying it con to conservatives, tying it for to Tim freaking Poole. I mean, there's obviously a narrative that they're trying to spin. There's something that they're trying to push that the left wing media thinks is going to be expedient and helpful for them. And so I, I, I do think it's worth it. And regardless of the narrative that's trying to be pushed, I think it's worth it for people to ask, like, is this really true? People are still debating like the gang tattoo. You'll hear me talk about this a little bit with Dr. Cardaris. Um, some people, again, are pointing out that on his hand, he has this strange tattoo. Some people are saying, no, that's just the city of Dallas a symbol. As I said, I grew up in Dallas. I didn't even know there was a symbol of Dallas that like people knew, much less would tattoo on their body. Other people are saying, sure, it's the city of Dallas. Um, it's the city of Dallas symbol, but it is also a gang tattoo. I don't know. I don't know. And uh, the some people are saying that it looks like Tango Blast and Aryan Circle. Aryan Circle is white supremacist neo-Nazi. Tango Blast would have been um, some kind of Hispanic gang. And um, that apparently this person looks like he would have been associated with those two gangs. Um, so there's a, I mean, there's still a lot of speculation that's going on out there. What we know is that this is a young troubled man. That's what we know. And that fits the profile of a lot of these mass shooters, whether you're talking about gang violence, whether you're talking about these school shootings or church shootings, it is almost always that not in Nashville, but it is almost always these young, disturbed, troubled, violent men. So I wanted to know, like, why is that? What is going on in the minds of these young men that they want to commit these horrific acts of violence that they know will also probably end in their death as well? Uh, men of all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of ethnicities are perpetrating these kinds of crimes. What is going on? So we're going to get into it. We're going to get into all of the um, 
controversy, and he's going to say some things that we're told we're not allowed to say. We're not allowed to say that these things have connections, things like video games and things like that, but he believes that they absolutely do. So Dr. Cardaris, um, the psychologist today, is going to break it all down for us. And uh, without further ado, here he is. Dr. Cardaris, thank you so much for joining us. Um, What I want to talk to you about today is a very disturbing subject, but that you've spent a lot of time on analyzing, talking about, and that is the mind of kind of the typical, I guess, male mass shooter, depending on how you define mass shooting, I guess, the kind that we typically see walking into a school, walking into a crowded area like we did over the weekend in Texas taking a gun and just shooting a bunch of people seemingly for no reason. And you've probably seen that the shooter over the weekend, they've analyzed some of his social media posts. Um, Apparently, if the posts are real, there's some verification happening. He identified perhaps as a neo-Nazi. He even identified as an incel, an involuntary celibate, seemed to glorify violence a lot when it came to other mass shootings, particularly the Nashville mass shooting. So, um, Tell me, just based on kind of the profile of what we know about this mass shooter and other mass shooters, what is going on here behind the scenes? Yeah, so I think it's a kind of a pretty complex phenomenon. But when you look at it at its core, it's a phenomenon of young people who feel a sense of emptiness and a sense of isolation. And and look, this is not new, right? There, there's always been uh, young people who have felt that way. Well, the The new ingredient has been these echo chambers of Uh, digital echo chambers that exacerbate uh, a sense of separation and isolation, but can also not just um, fuel people's ideological beliefs. um, They become, the best way that I could put this is, you know, once upon a time, um, a lot of these groups were, used to be support groups for lonely people, and now they've become um, breeding grounds for angry people. Mm. Um, So you've always had the lost teenager that's trying to find a sense of meaning or purpose or identity in the digital age that's been amplified. And now they're finding community with online chat rooms like in 4chan or different types of ideological groups. Because when you look at these school shooters, they do tend to fall into two types of categories. One is the ideologically inspired shooter. The one like the potential, the shooter, not the potential, but the shooter that we're talking about from the other day that seemed to be uh, Nazi, white supremacist, uh, ideologically based. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of those. Like, and then, by the way, this is no longer localized to the United States. You know, the, the largest mass shootings have been now internationally. You know, we had, um, Brazik was the shooter in, uh, uh, Norway, um, in mm-hmm. 2012 who killed 77 people at that youth camp because again, he was also, um, a nationalist who felt that, you know, there was, he was trying to basically, he had a manifesto, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so you have, um, like the Christchurch shooter also, who was an anti-Muslim, uh, ideologically driven person who also had a manifesto, the Christchurch shooting where he killed over 51 people in the mosque, uh, and also left a manifesto. So typically the ideologically driven shooters will have a manifesto, will be driven by really an extreme belief system that's been, um, fueled and amplified on social media and the world that we live in. The others are more the lonely outlier, the one who feels just alone and angry and wants their 15 minutes of infamy. Um, that's the more mentally unstable. That would be more like the Newtown, Connecticut, Adam Lanza type. That would be more like the school shooters that are looking for some sense of meaning in their lives and their copycats who are seeing that if I commit a school shooting, I'm going to get some notoriety. I'm going to have some sense of value to my life because my life feels empty and worthless. So not so much ideologically driven, but emptiness driven and trying to get a sense of um, also immortality. Mm. The interesting thing is if you look at school shootings, these were really unheard of before Columbine. You know, before Colin mm-hmm. Bond, which was, you know, uh, Klebold and Harris were the two young men, you know, the, the trench coat mafia who did that in 1999. You really, the only other real big school shooting was in 1966, the UT Tower, University of Texas Tower shooting, which was a, um, a Marine that had some traumatic brain injury that essentially 
um, had an insane day and shot and killed 14 people in 1966. But from 1966 until Columbine, school shootings weren't even a phenomenon. 1999, when Columbine happened, was the first internet era school shooting. And then you created the template, the prototype for other young men to now say, I can now have some notoriety in my life. Yeah. I can now also be someone. Um, what, what do you think it, shifted yeah. from 1966 to 1999? I have my own theories, but from a psychologist's perspective, like, what do you think changed in the minds of young men and the minds of people that now we've had several of these in the past 20 plus years? Well, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think the, the digital age has been kerosene to a fire and, you know, you, you, we've had this phenomenon as, as we've become a society of emptiness, this, uh, you know, the great uh, book that was uh, bowling alone in the mm -hmm. early 1970s mm -hmm. talked about how we as a society have shifted where we don't have the supports and the sense of tethering that give people a sense of identity. Yeah. So people are looking for identity. People feel lost and empty. So our faith-based institutions have fallen by the wayside. People are not as connected to those as they used to be. Even things like um, youth clubs and, you know, uh, uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, YMCAs, um, uh, social organizations, rotary clubs, things that people used to belong to. People had more of a sense of belonging and now people feel more fragmented and isolated. And so that creates this emptiness that people often uh, talk about and write about. Um, if I can, the, the incel movement is particularly interesting yes. in how it evolved. Um, the the original incel, no, no, well, let me take that back. He wasn't the original incel, but he was the first high-profile incel, was Elliot, Elliot Rogers, was the one that most people know. He was the young man that was this, yeah, he went to UC Santa Barbara and with a knife, a car, and a gun committed, uh, killed over six people people and over 14 were injured and he really targeted a sorority. He targeted what he felt were the women that rejected him, which he called the Stacy's and then the men that they gave the effect, their affections to the Chad's. Mm. So the Chad and the Stacy's were his target. I did and, not know um, this. Yeah. So, so his, and by the way, his father had been a pretty prominent Hollywood director. His father was one of the directors on the hunger games and so this was a kid of privilege. And when he did his manifesto, so he did a video manifesto the night before the murders and he's sitting in his BMW and it's almost like a stereotype. He's snarling like a Hollywood villain and he's talking about how he's been wronged and how the world is terrible and he's going to destroy the world. He's talking about in this manifesto and he says things. I mean, I, I want to give you the exact quote because I don't want to misquote, but he said things like, it was going to be his day of retribution against a wretched and, de and uh, depraved society. And he said, I am the good guy. I am the victim here. And like all narcissists, he felt a sense of being wronged. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't see any role in his sense of why he had never even kissed a girl at that point. The interesting part is he commits this murder, these murders rather. But then a strange phenomenon happens. He becomes deified within a certain community of lost, angry female rejected young men and and he became known as the supreme gentleman um that video if you go on youtube and google it you could find it the supreme gentleman so now thousands of young men consider themselves incels and at least 10 have copied his uh misogynistic violent attacks against women the most prominent one was the toronto truck murders in 2018 there was a young man who took a rider truck and plowed through the crowd and killed over 10 uh, killed 10 people injured over 18 and on his social media was paying tribute to elliot rogers called himself a private in the incel rebellion paid tribute to elliot rogers as their supreme gentleman leader and and they were now ideologically aligned with this sort of misogynistic angry message the interesting part of this more interesting part of this whole phenomenon was the incel movement originally was started by a woman, a Canadian college student back in 1996. Her name was Alana, and she started her website called Alana's Involuntary Celibate Club. And it was supposed to be a Lonely Hearts support group. Right. And it, she started this as a well-intentioned 
support system for people who were struggling with relationships. It was open Mm -hmm. to men and women. And it morphed like so many things online morph. Once the angry young men parachuted into that group, it became something quite different. She had to quit the group. She regretted what she had created because she had no idea that this Alana's, you know, kind of warmly funny uh, involuntary celibate support group was going to morph into the contagion that turned Elliot Rogers into a mass murderer and created thousands of followers. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the school shooting things. Klebold and Harris, according to the Homeland Security investigators and the FBI, became a template for other copycats in social contagion fashion. All right, quick pause to tell you about our first sponsor for the day. That's Carly Jean, Los Angeles. I'm wearing all Carly Jean right now. This black dress that I'm wearing, the sweater that I'm wearing. I love Carly Jean. It makes me feel good in every stage of life. I can wear their clothes pregnant, pre-pregnant, postpartum. They're all just really versatile any season of the year too. That's why Carly Jean started this company. She wanted women to feel good in their bodies and to feel comfortable. And I love knowing that by shopping with them, I am supporting values that I believe in too. Their basics line is all made in the US, which is amazing. And if you use my code AllieBasics on that basics line, you get 25% off, excluding final sale items, always free shipping over $100. CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com, code AllieBasics. So how is this um, incel being an involuntary celibate kind of being angry at both the men and the women that they feel have kind of marginalized them, rejected them, not brought them into the fold of dating or sex or whatever. How is that connected to someone going out and shooting a seemingly random group of people? Like I'd understand the connection a little bit more if they were all happening at sorority houses. But I mean, these people seem kind of indiscriminate in a lot of cases, except for those, you know, religious targeting. But, you know, the strip mall over the weekend, Columbine seems kind of, you know, you're killing a bunch of different kinds of people. So how are those two things connected? Well, Columbine, they they were planning that for a year, by the way, and that was going to be a bomb attack originally, and then they had to resort to guns for the mass attack. So you have to understand that most of these folks are not only empty, and but they're narcissists, right? So a narcissist feels very victimized and sort of blames the world for whatever feeling of malcontent that they have. And, and when you have to look at what the digital age, I mean, we're breeding narcissistic thinking. I've tried to make this, uh, I've tried to kind of illustrate this to people. Think about if you're a young kid or a pre-adolescent, adolescent, and you're growing up in the digital age, right? Um, and we've talked about this, Ali, you're of a certain age, I'm of a certain age. Um, because of the way predictive algorithms work, uh, if you're 12 years old and you start searching for something, the algorithms will start sending you more and more of that content. Now, forgetting the echo chamber amplification effect, it also creates a sense of, I'm the center of my digital universe. It creates a sense of egocentric narcissism because it's almost a form of magical thinking. A lot of these younger kids whose digital world is created in their image now because the predictive algorithms curate a digital world for them that is really tailored to them. So now you begin to think, wow, I am the center of the universe. And 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 this was reflected. Elliot Rogers had this one quote where he said, um, he analogized himself to God, or he said he was, um, um, yeah, he's the closest thing. I'm the closest thing to a living God. Hmm. Um, so a lot of these folks feel wrong. They're self-centered narcissists. The digital world amplifies that effect. And the extremism, we get it. The extremism will create certain targets, but you're, you're asking about the more of the random mass shootings. Well, so now they feel that the society is it needs mm-hmm. to be disrupted because the society has wronged them. So um, it's not so much indiscriminate as it's trying to disrupt the fabric of a society that they feel has wronged them or, or, or victimized them. So it doesn't matter if it's the five-year-old at a shopping mall or you know a random person at a school that they've never met, they're lashing out. They're lashing out because, and again, for a narcissist, other people aren't, they don't really have the empathy of a sense of like, I'm hurting other people. These people are human living flesh and blood that I'm causing harm to, they don't have that same sense of empathy that you and I have, where if you see somebody that, you know, and I've worked with 
Uh, I've worked, you know, I've, I've done murder trials and I've done things with, you know, narcissistic young people. Uh, you and I might see somebody get hit by a bus and go over to help and, oh my God, do you need some assistance? They don't. Uh, they just see it and they find entertainment in violence sometimes. They've, they're desensitized to it. They don't have... You know, we might look at it neurologically as there's a thing called mirror neurons and mirror neurons are what allow us to feel empathy with other human beings. You know, there's some research that seems to show that if you grow up gaming and on a lot of digital media, your mirror neurons, your empathy neurons never fully develop. Mm. So I definitely, complex I definitely reasons, but they don't that. feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was no, I was just saying I definitely want to talk about the video game phenomenon. But one question I do have just about this narcissism piece, because I agree, it just seems like there's no sense whatsoever in ooh, what kind of consequences will this reap? Uh, you know, what effect will this have? And one of the effects that they seem to not really care about is the effect that it'll even have on themselves. Like most of us, when we think about narcissism and just like the colloquial sense you think of someone who loves themselves who has a will do anything to protect themselves but these people they're committing these shootings i'm guessing knowing that they are going to be killed right and sometimes they even take their own life and so i mean they don't i guess they don't even feel any sense of um that they even have any kind of dignity or that they're even worthy of compassion right Yes and no. I think yes what's no. more important for them is just to live forever. And mm. in infamy, they'll live forever. So the narcissist wants to be Got remembered. It. So Got that's it. why so many of them are live streaming it, right? So many of these shootings are, are live streamed because this this is performative. You need an audience because um, this wouldn't happen. Um, these events wouldn't happen in a, in a media vacuum. If there was a sense that they committed these acts and nobody would know if, if the tree fell in the forest, no one was there to hear it. If a mass murderer shot up uh, a community and there was no one there to see it, I don't think they would do it. The The whole intention is to create this um, because this is what they're mimicking, right? We know from social learning theory, we learned by models. They saw that Klebold and Harris, Columbine, those two were talking about them today, 24 years later. So that's the goal. Maybe bodily I might be killed, but I lonely, um, low, uh, you know, because right. paradoxically, narcissists have a very, you know, it's uh, uh, egomaniacs with an inferiority complex is a phrase that we used to use. So they have kind of a low self-worth, yet they feel this uh, exaggerated sense of importance. And so how can they how can they be put on the Mount Rushmore of, of shooters? And oftentimes you'll read in some of their manifestos, they're trying to outscore the other mass shooters. They're trying to get more Ugh. kills because the more kills is the more uh, will be the more infamous. Do you think they also take pleasure in the sadness and the division and the chaos, the arguments, the debates and all of that that erupt after they do something like this? Yeah, I think, you know, they used to say that about serial, you know, because the psychological profile of a serial killer versus a mass murderer used to be very different. And and they used to say that the serial killer was taking the serial killer uh, profile used to be um, a white male. And in our society, the white male is the privilege. You know, you're supposed to be the the high achieving, uh, you know, we have the most opportunity because there's the less uh, less obstacles in, in our success. And it's the white underachieving male who doesn't achieve in the society where they're supposed to be achieving, the quote unquote loser. And now I want to disrupt the fabric of this society. And so I'm going to do these these, I'm going to yeah. show my sense of power and my sense of that I am someone by doing these sort of methodically premeditated uh, shootings as opposed to sort of uh, the mass, because the mass shootings before the these more recent generation of school shootings used to be the kind of more the going postal, the rage filled episode where somebody would go right. after they got fired and they would go shoot up somebody because they were rage filled. The serial killer used to be the person that was methodically disrupting the society Interestingly, because there's a, obviously this is always leads to the gun debate. And to me, I think it's, it's a no brainer that this is more of a societal and psychiatric issue rather than the gun mm-hmm. debate because, and, and, and I want to slide over to this issue. We see this phenomenon happening in a country like China. So China has undergone a huge seismic shift in their societal uh, norms. They've gone from an agrarian essentially surf farm-based society into a hyper post-industrial technological society where the average male in China used to have their small plot of land. They were 
it was poverty, but you had something to call your own. You had your little plot that you would live on and farm and, and tend to. And now all of a sudden you've been shifted into these uh, mega cities where you're working in mega factories. And and there's a, a, a confusion and there's an anger. There's a sense of feeling lost. There's a, a shift to the psyche of that whole society. And so what we're seeing that's manifesting into they're having these epidemic episodes of mass stabbings in schools. Mm. So there's been 25, 30 episodes wow. of young Chinese men who are entered elementary schools with machetes and knives and just start slashing. Wow. And all you see is a rage at a society that has now marginalized them, dehumanized them, not valued them. And this is them just lashing out. They're they're not going for infamy or because they don't get the notoriety that they do in yeah. our culture. And there's a school shooting. Every news station has them. In that society, it's just rage. All right, another break to tell you guys about Public Square. So we talk about a lot the importance of supporting companies that share your values when possible. Public Square makes that really easy. It's a down it's an app that you download on your device and you can search businesses near you or services near you that are owned by people that align with you. And you can also list your business. So if you are a business owner and you want people to patronize you that believe in the things that you do, you can list your business there for free. It's an amazing service. I think every day we're finding out that one of our favorite companies has betrayed us. And as much as we can, we try to switch to those companies that are making high quality products that share the principles that you and I have. That's why Public Square exists. I love this service so much. All you have to do is go to publicsquare.com. You can download the app. It's available at the App Store too. Um, Public SQ is how it's spelled. Public SQ, that stands for Public Square. Just enter in your email and then, of course, the general location where you want to find these businesses and then you can find them and list your own business. You're good to go. So go to publicsq.com. That's publicsq.com. So it's it's happening across cultures in a variety of ways. I think when we think of the typical mass school shooter, we typically think of a young, white, frustrated male. When someone thinks about the incel, we're thinking about the young, white, frustrated right. male. But right. of course, it depends on how you define mass shooting. I think it's typically defined as four or more victims. But when you're looking at so-called gun violence across the board. I mean, it's really all different cultures, all different races. Obviously, gang violence is a big problem in the inner cities. We saw just the other day a horrible story out of Alabama where a few teens who happened to be black, they walked into a party and they killed a bunch of people, you know, sprayed them with right. bullets. And so we don't see that as much in the news. It's kind of strange how one kind of story is elevated and the other one isn't. But right. the commonality does seem to be in almost every case, except for the Nashville shooter, is that it's a male and it's a young male. Um, so tell us about that. Like, why Why is that? Whether it's in China, whether it's here, whether it's in Texas, whether it's in New York City, it's almost always men. And I think most people kind of have the common sense to know why. But again, from a psychological perspective, why is it usually men and not women? Well, again, it goes back to kind of what I was saying, where the, the male is supposed to be the... Um, there's expectations on the male role. And, and again, if somebody feels it's the quote unquote loser profile, right? I'm not, I'm not feeling empowered as a man should in this society. And you're, you're going to sort of act out, but what's happening again, also you're entering these various hate groups that are now, yeah. as I said before, they're breeding grounds for that resentment. So, uh, 30 years ago, if you just felt marginalized and empty, you know, you might just be depressed and you might, uh, you know, not have a very wonderful life. But now if you start going on to 4chan, you're finding community. So a lot of these angry groups are finding community. So the, the internet can be wonderful for people to find community who have disabilities and have different issues. Wonderful. They're finding community where otherwise it would not have been a sense of community. But now really, uh, potentially dangerous groups are finding community in ways that can really, um, amplify and amplify and amplify. Yeah. So the, the, again, the, there were always sort of young men going through these transitional adolescent developmental phases. Um, but they didn't have these sort of communities that are yeah. now breeding grounds, as I said before. Yeah. So, you know, and with females, you know, there, there's issues that way too. And, and, uh, and 
you know, the Nashville shooter, as you mentioned, but even the Uvalde shooter was ostensibly also trans. Um, there's, there's now, you know, folks who are feeling angry at the society because they're feeling marginalized. Now, so, you know, and what's interesting, you know, it's been mentioned in the media quite a bit that, you know, we, we know, we knew within the first day that the shooter in Texas uh, the other day was uh, a, a, a nationalist or white supremacist, even though his, it was Hispanic. But right away, his ideological profile was newsworthy. And we still don't have the manifesto from the Nashville shooter. And yeah, again, exactly. people are speculating that because of it's going to not help certain political causes to because, you you know, the, what I had read, the couple of people that had seen that they'd said that it was so horrific and it was such a manifesto of destruction mm -hmm. um, that it would not serve um, certain political narratives. So, um, yeah. you know, I think any group now that feels angry and marginalized can potentially have representative school, sh school shooters or mass shooters to yeah. lash out. And I, it seems to me that, I mean, obviously we know that in general, young men are, men are more aggressive physically than women. They have more testosterone than women do. They were made to have that aggression. That's why men are typically, they have different jobs than women do. Even whether it's just like hands-on blue collar jobs or whether you're talking about being in the military, being a police officer, it's much more likely for a man to take those roles than women. And I do wonder if we don't have healthy channels to kind of to channel that healthy masculinity, right. that healthy testosterone that is going to be inevitably pulsing through the veins of those teenage boys. And I'm not I'm not casting them as victims, but I, I do wonder some of the consequences of constantly just trying to say, no, masculinity is bad. No, any form of aggression is bad. No, right. it's all toxic. So let's just suppress it. That just doesn't right. seem to be working very well for men. Yeah, that, that's a great insight. So, you know, the toxic masculinity narrative, right, how we've demonized what was traditionally male. And, you know, and again, we were having conversation about the differences between biological sexes or gender. And, and you know, now that's that's all also being sort of um, the rug is being pulled mm -hmm. out from the whole society with with male, what's male, what's female. And the interesting part with all of that is exactly what you're saying is when you make being male toxic and this starts at the elementary school level right there's yeah. been books written about this where boys are expected to comport themselves like little girls in the classroom and when they don't that's when we have the whole adhd diagnosis and medicate let's medicate because the the there's been again uh, educators that focus on this looked at most elementary school teachers are female and they ex you know and Girls tend to be more collectivist. Boys tend to be, as you said, more aggressive and more rambunctious. And so if they're not sitting in the reading circle like the girls are, they must be hyperactive and we need to yeah. medicate them into a, a docile-like um, yeah. submission. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and as they kind of get older, though, like as you said, the expectation is that you can't be male. But what we've seen in even people's digital preferences, we know that the gaming industry is predominantly male because that taps into aggression and all the first person shooter games and all the violence uh, uh, amplifying games. And females tend to gravitate towards social media, which taps into their sense of connectivity and collectivism. And so we know that there's predilections between the genders um, that, that the, the digital, the big tech identifies really clearly and plays towards. Um, but then that also exacerbates it too. So now you have violent ga the violent gaming industry, which has taken these young, empty men, giving them not only sort of a digital cause because when they're gaming, they're 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 leveling up and they're doing. They have a sense of it's purpose, but it's not real purpose, right? Because if mm -hmm. you've reached level 155 in the in the fantasy world, but what is that really? Right, right. But it's also desensitizing them to violence, and there's been a boatload of violence research and aggression research with violent gaming and yeah. how that impacts and desensitizes young men additionally. Well, let's talk about that because whenever someone brings anything up, I actually just my sister-in-law texted me the other day, do you think that these violent video games are helping cause this? And of course, I mean, I I do. I just from a not and that's not based on any research or any expertise that I have. It's just kind of it seems common sense to me that if you are constantly glorifying violence, you're attaching your identity or attaching your accolades to violence, even if it's virtual violence, of course, it's not always going to lead to real life violence. But in certain individuals, it, it seems like it would. So tell us about 
the connection there? Is there a real connection that everyone seems to want to deny? Yeah, so there's real substantial research. The main folks that did um, media violence and its effect on young people were it's Dr. Craig Anderson and the folks at Iowa State. They've been studying media violence for over 30 years now, and and they're call, they're calling it not a not a correlational link, but a causal link. Mm. You watch violent content, you will become more aggressive. Now, more aggressive doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a school shooter, but it means you might be more likely to punch your sister or you know kick the dog, or you're going to right. be you're raising your 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 aggression uh, threshold. Research on that is clear. The research is also clear that how how realistic the the violence is on screen also has an amplification of the the violent effect. So remember back in the day, you know, they used to say things like Bugs Bunny, you know, were violent Warner Brothers cartoons would you know make people more violent. Or when I was growing up, they had cop shows like Starsky and Hutch, and they would say mm -hmm. that you know that's going to make teenagers more violent. There was a bit of a moral panic about that. The difference was when you watched an old TV show in the seventies or eighties. It wasn't the, the level of realism wasn't there. It was right. bang, bang, pow, pow, bugs. You know, the road runner falls off the cliff there. It, it's not it's so um, cartoon like that. There's no confusing that there's no reality blurring line there. Now we have hyper immersive, hyper realism, uh, huge <laughs> plasma or LCD screens where young children who are still developing their sense of reality testing, what's real and what's not, are losing themselves in these larger interactive violent episodes. And now you've got real gunshot fire. You've got real blood splattering. The one of the studies they did at Iowa State, they looked at the aggression effect when there was the actual uh, blood versus no blood mod modifications on the game. And the how much the sound effects were realistic. Mm. And so the more realistic, you know, this is probably common sense, right? The more blood on screen and the more the realistic the sound effects were, the more uh, the more the aggression was elevated. Um, so we know that from social learning theory, we learn from role models and those role models can be digital and they can be real. So we could learn how to smoke from our friends and we could also learn how to um, be violent through uh, interactive digital media games. That's a no brainer that it makes young people more aggressive and violent. Um, and some people are more likely to become, to go past that trigger point. There was a great book also. Um, he was a, a West Point professor. He was a major in the army, uh, Grossman, uh, major Grossman wrote a book, stop teach, uh, stop teaching our kids to kill. And it was a whole book against the gaming industry, the video game industry. And this is, a a military man who was a bit basically saying that it was desensitizing young people. And a lot of these young gamers were going into the military, by the way, they were, they wanted to extend the video game experience. I've had, uh, I had two specifically private clients myself years ago who were playing uh, call of duty. And I remember the one young man, he was 17. He came into my office on the Monday. He had a 48 hour jag of playing call of duty. And he came into my office on the Monday morning. And he said, I did it. I, I signed up. I signed up for the Marines. And, and now it'll be real. And, and there was, and I was like, you know, you, you're not going to be able to shut this. It's not a game now. You can't turn this off. Right. But it, it was sort of greasing the tracks for them to either do the real thing in a military setting or in, you know, let's face it, uh, things like Grand Theft Auto aren't military. These are like a random acts of violence where you're beating prostitutes with a baseball bat. And there are eight-year-olds playing this game where, where you hear the baseball bat hitting a woman over the head and the blood is splattering. And, and adults are saying, oh, they're just playing a video game. But for some of these kids, this is an immersive real world. So yeah. we think that's not going to impact them? Of course. I mean, it's like the connection between, you know, people watching hardcore pornography and sexual violence. Yeah, that's not real either. But I mean, it is training your brain to think about people differently. It's training your brain to think right. about people like objects. And so I don't know, it just makes sense to me that there would be a connection. Uh, the World Health Organization said that they've now added gaming disorder to their list of mental disorders or mental health yeah. concerns. Um, what is gaming disorder? 
Yeah, we've been trying to fight that battle for like four or five years now. The APA still hasn't gotten there. You get the American Psychological Association. So gaming disorder essentially now classifies, it's under the umbrella of what are called process addictions. And process addictions are behavioral addictions like sex and gambling can be behavioral compulsions that can uh, that can be addictions. And so gaming disorder is basically someone who is addicted to gaming in a way that it, the, the biggest symptom is it, adversely impacts your daily functioning. So is it adversely impacting your schooling, your social life, your physical health? Um, uh, are you, is your real life becoming smaller and smaller and smaller in the devotion of your new uh, compulsion, obsession, addiction, call it, call it what you can't, what you will. You know, I'm careful about the word addiction because I know people, for some people that's a third rail word, word because when I have people that I treat, they don't like to hear that they're addicts. So, you know, I might say obsession or compulsion sometimes just to kind of soften the language for the person who's struggling with the understanding that they have a problem. But the reality is there's so many people now that are having a problem. You know, what was interesting was in, in the Far East, they had identified gaming as a problem way before we did. You know, over, over 10 years ago in China, they, they considered gaming their number one health crisis for young people. They had identified over 20 million uh, gamers that had had a problem and South Korea had opened up 400 rehabs just devoted to technology addiction or gaming addiction. So they were way ahead of the curve in terms of identifying the problem and treating it than we were. We're a little slow to the dance to realize that this has become an addiction for many young people and problematic for many young people. All right, if you want to purify the air in your home, like if you're dealing with bad odors or if you're just worried about bacteria and viruses floating around, you want to make sure that the air you're breathing is clean, then you should get an air purifier from Eden Pure. They've got a really de a good deal going on right now where you can save $200 on an Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifier 3-pack for whole home protection. So three units for under $200, that's a really good deal. These are high-quality air filters that can run, you know, very, very high price. Um, and you're getting them all for under $200. That's a really, really awesome deal. You just plug it straight into your wall. So it doesn't even take up any floor space or anything like that. You can't hear it. You don't notice it. It uses O3 technology to take those bad things out of the air. You can even travel with it if you want to. If you don't want to smell the mustiness in your hotel room, take your Eden Pure Thunderstorm with you plug it into the wall, and you are good to go. Go to EdenPureDeals.com, put in discount code Allie to save $200. EdenPureDeals.com, code Allie. EdenPureDeals.com, code Allie. There was a study that showed a couple things. One study that found that using gaming as a coping mechanism for stress, that's something that a lot of young boys do, it actually resulted in even higher levels of stress and aggression. Um, and that sometimes they were coping because of the stress of social alienation, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Um, some of these people that we've seen become these school shooters their video games who are kind of like their pacifier or their security blanket or even their sense of community because I know that you have the ability in some of these games to, you know, talk to other people and form community, I guess, that way. But rather than it actually calming them down as, you know, comfort measures are supposed to do, it actually just exacerbated their stress and I guess caused them to channel stress in very aggressive and violent ways. Yeah, I mean, we could look at it like, uh, well, essentially any kind of uh, hyper arousing digital content like that is a stimulant. It raises its dopaminergic, it raises dopamine levels. So it's like the, you know, kind of paradoxically, it's like kind of like how the way we give a stimulant to somebody, a kid who has ADHD, will give Ritalin to the ADHD kid, even though, wait, wait a second, we're giving a stimulant to a kid who's already hyperactive. That seems a little counterintuitive. Um, but while... Um, so while it's a stimulant, it's also acts a little bit as a hypnotic. So the kid who's hyperactive is now sort of gets hypnotized by his screen experience, but it is arousing them. So adrenally, they're going through this arousal response, dopaminergically, they're going through this arousal response. And then when you take away the screen, that person has now raised their thermostat on adrenaline and dopamine, and they've been, it's, it's, it's made it worse. You know, it's similar to like something like um, a person who's depressed who starts drinking alcohol. I'm depressed and I'll start self-medicating by drinking. 
the drinking temporarily makes me feel better, but we know that drinking is a sedative. It's, it's going to make you more depressed eventually. But the more I drink, the more depressed I get. The more depressed I get, the more I drink because I escape in that. And so that's what a lot of the gamers that I've worked with, they'll say that they're depressed, but the more they game, the more depressed they get. And then the more depressed they get, the more they escape in gaming. So it's a vicious cycle that perpetuates itself. Um, that depression also, I could say, is true with anxiety and and things like um, you know more aggression because it'll it's a temporary digital pacifier, but it's actually making the problem worse. And so when you get off that pacifier, you're going to not be better um, in the same way that somebody takes a sedative. If you, if you take uh, Xanax to calm yourself, it'll temporarily work. But once you're off the Xanax, you're going to get a bad rebound effect and get even more anxiety when you're not taking the Xanax. Same thing with the screen time. Yeah. And what's the connection you see between these acts of violence that we're talking about and drug use, is there typically some kind of correlation or causal relationship there? Well, I mean, it goes back to anybody who, you know, we talk about the metaphor that I really love is uh, same root system, different branch systems. Mm. So at the core, if someone's got some underlying issues, whether it's depression, trauma, anxiety, they're going to try to find some way to um, self-soothe to decrease that sense of discomfort. Uh, and, and so you might find one person's expression of self-medicating might be drug and alcohol. The other person's might be compulsive sex or, or gambling or digital experiences. Um, and so typically they are comorbid. It's rare that I have a gamer that's not either smoking a little bit too much pot or, or doing something else that are also kind of manifestations of their own emptiness or discomfort. Um, yeah, and, and typically, you know, I've been an addiction psychologist for 25 years. We also, it's called the whack-a-mole theory of addiction, right? You're, you're treating somebody who identifies only it's, a uh, it's, a uh, the lens is focused on the substance. It's substance focused. Uh, uh, the person says my problem is alcohol. So they stop drinking alcohol. And then, you know, two weeks later, now they're taking too many pills or they're, they're smoking too much pop because you put out one fire, you hit one whack-a-mole yeah. and then the other whack-a-mole pops up because the problem is, is internal and, and you could put out the symptom, but the symptom isn't the real issue. It's just how you're trying to self-regulate yourself or, or lessen your discomfort. And it's true with digital media as well. Right. And obviously we don't know all of the things that this most recent shooter in Texas was into, as we said, we know some of his profile. But one thing that we do apparently know that's being reported is that he was um, removed from the army when uh, back in 2008 for mental health concerns. But then he was still able to go on and to, you know, become a security officer. He had extensive firearm training. Um, do you see that it's a problem with a lot of these men that are dealing with these underlying mental health issues that they are not given the help that they need or that just no one even addressed their underlying anxiety or depression? They just kind of ignored it. Well, I think, you know, the, the fine line that we talk about, there's a concept called compulsory treatment. When can you force someone to get treatment? You know, oftentimes everyone sort of wrings their hands like, they should have known and, and somebody should have gotten, but you know, we we're dealing with legal adults and forcing someone into treatment. There's it's a, yeah. justifiably, there's a pretty high bar. Um, mm -hmm. I, we don't want quote unquote, the state, uh, mandating, um, cause you know, that slippery slope becomes very political too. Now what's considered a, uh, a psychiatric disorder. Right. I don't want a uh, potentially psychiatrist, uh, committing someone to treatment because they're not fitting some paradigms or norms. So there's a pretty high bar in forcing people into treatment. In New York, where I live, they had something called Kendra's Law. And Kendra's Law was 25 years ago, there was a, a unmedicated schizophrenic client who was on the subway system and he pushed a woman, Kendra Webdale, in front of a train and killed her. Mm. And Kendra's Law said that if you have a psychiatric history and a history of a demonstrated act of acting violently when you're not medicated, you don't get the right to not take your meds. If you don't show up and take your meds, you will be arrested. You'll be put in forcibly put into, into either uh, a jail setting or a psychiatric secure facility. So Kendra's Luck try to look at some of these issues. How do you can force, you know, in Florida, they have the Baker Act where you can, you know, for 72 hours, sign somebody in to force them to get treatment. Yeah. 
So I worked in school settings for a long time, and there were a lot of high school kids that would write, you know, pretty weird things in their English essay that the English teachers would, you know, their hair would be on fire and they would say, oh my God, this, this young man should be sent away to treatment or locked up or, and 99 times out of a hundred, it was kind of fantasy or storytelling. Um, we don't have an exact predictive crystal ball with right. mental health to know which one out of those hundred is the potential is the person's going to act violently because a lot of young people today are writing yeah. a lot of weird things. Yeah. And if we started, um, forcing all of them into kind of residential treatment settings, uh, we wouldn't have enough hospitals or rehabs to do that. Right. So, so that's, it's a, it's, it's kind of a bit of a gray area, but yeah. Uh, it is It is tough. I, I wish that there, I mean, obviously we both care very much about civil liberties. I agree with you that it is a slippery slope that for revenge, someone could say that their ex-husband has, you know, some mental health issues, get them locked up, get their guns taken away or something like that. But then right, you right. look at these situations, there's almost always been some kind of underlying mental health issue that was never addressed. I even think about that guy, Jordan Neely, um, that just died in the subway and yep, he had yep. 42 two 44 prior arrests, serious right, mental health right, issues, right. had been violent in his past, had been That's threatening right. people. And I just think, okay, I, I don't know that prison was the best option for that person, but something right. was. Like something should have protected innocent people from his harassment. Something should have protected him too. Because, right, so, yeah, so, so I, I just don't know the answer. Well, it ref reflects three broken aspects of the system. It reflects a broken mental health system, a broken criminal justice system. And, um, uh, there was a third one in there somewhere that I now, now kind of eluded me, but, but yeah, he fell through the cracks and, yeah. and that shouldn't happen. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I think there should be one thing that I've been involved with. There's been a movement to try to have mandatory mental health screenings for elementary and middle school kids, right? You want to be able to, well, and the narrative is get them the support that they need, right? You don't, but then the, the pushback is that is you're trying to red flag, uh, yeah, school shooters or, or mm -hmm. kids that might just be a little bit off and you're trying to kind of, um, you know, stigmatize them. But, right. but if we were able to do pre-screenings and, and, you know, have like a mental health day in schools where every kid did some level of psychological screenings, we can get a sense of like who might need some more help and who might be a little bit further along that might need some more supervision yeah. and some more structured, uh, you know, be on the radar, at least if something uh, happens. What was interesting about the Texas shooter that's allegedly been a Nazi, because I did see the pictures of him where he had swastikas on his chest. And um, yeah, but some of those, Hispanic, some of those pictures. So it's, it, it's ongoing. And you know, this always happens. After a few days, we'll know more. But apparently, the profile of this person that was a from Facebook reportedly was created very recently. Some of the pictures, people, internet sleuths are amazing, have found that people that were on his Facebook page weren't actually taken by him, but were actually taken from a neo-Nazi Reddit page and put on his page. So the question is, did he create this page? And is he posting these things or is someone else afterwards for attention, whatever, creating this page? I don't I don't know yet. I'm sure that we'll find more information. Is, even is today, it a question but... of whether the are the tattoos alleged to be photoshopped or? No, I, I not necessarily photoshopped, but there were a lot of different pictures on there that, you know, were right. Nazi symbols and things like that, that they're not sure whether he posted or not. So people are pointing out that the tattoos look strange. They look fairly new. People are debating yeah. still whether or not some of the tattoos were gang symbols or the city of Dallas. Symbol. There's a lot of debates and I'm not going to pretend right, to right. be the arbiter of those, right. but um, I, I don't even remember the what the point was of that. But yes, well, there, there's some I, well, debate about his associations, his affiliations, I guess. If he was a Nazi, if yeah. those swastikas were indeed real. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because I have worked with people of that profile too, because look, let's face it, he was Hispanic, right? And uh, being a Hispanic white supremacist with uh, the Nazis were not fond of uh, people of color of any variety. Yeah. And right. And so, and I've worked with clients. So th this is a particular profile of client also, the self-loathing client, right? Where I remember one time I worked with a, 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 a white supremacist young person who was Polish. And, you know, it amazed me how little of history some of these kids knew. And I remember having mm -hmm. to have the conversation saying, you've got a, a, a Nazi swastika on your chest, similar with the, the, the Hispanic right. friend. Are you aware of what Adolf Hitler did to the 
Polish people. Right. Are, are you aware of, and, and subconsciously, I think they are aware of it, but there's a sense of self-loathing. It's, it's like you when you encounter sometimes, um, oh, you know, there, there's, there's whatever your, whatever your ethnic group is, if you have a, a self-loathing towards that group, and then a lot of people, and this is not that uncommon where you, you don't like where you come from. Um, you aspire to be of another cultural or ethnic identity. And so, you know, in psychology, we call it a reaction formation. So you then begin to now, uh, objectify and demonize the other, you know, so you're going to become now the ethnic group that you aspire towards. And it's, it's a bit of cultural appropriation, I guess you would say, but it's because at your core, you have this really low self-esteem and it's now applied to your whole ethnic group. And, and you hate what your ethnic group represents, and you're going to become the polar opposite of that. Yeah. And if this was a Hispanic man who was uh, somewhat self-loathing and became a Nazi, that might explain some of that, because uh, that's happened. Yeah. But I don't know if that's true specifically in this case, but some of the pieces seem to be adding up. All right, last sponsor for the day is Birch gold. So I don't need to tell you guys that the future is unstable, that you need to make sure that your family is financially secure as possible. I'm sure you feel like you're doing everything that you can to take those steps. But one step that you may have not taken yet is to consider diversifying into gold. It's really important to have those hard assets. They can withstand inflation and all of the turbulence that we're seeing um, in the market. You can own gold in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. And if you're like, Allie, I don't know. I just need more information on that. Is this gold thing, like, is it really right for me? The great thing is you can get an info kit from them totally for free without any obligation and just learn more about it. Text Allie to 989-898. Allie to 989-898. So if you are treating um, a young man who fits these kinds of profiles that we've talked about, whatever it is, it, they're they're violent, whether they're neo-Nazi or not. Maybe you see in this person a profile of a would-be mass shooter. Like how how do you how do you treat a young man like that? What what does that entail? Yeah, it, it's it's really kind of you have to kind of strip away all the external. You know, you have to kind of it's almost like layer by layer of the onion. You have to peel back each layer to get to a person's sort of intrinsic sense of self and identity and almost build that back up in a way that becomes healthier. So now, well, first and foremost, you have to build a therapeutic alliance. You have to build some sense of connection with that person to be able to meaningfully engage in this mm -hmm. journey of beginning to understand how the person got to where they got and to then start chipping away and chipping away and peeling back some of the layers and to then create, uh, hopefully, uh, reshape that person's sense of self and self-worth and, and their paradigm of the world in, in a healthier way. And, and oftentimes that comes, you know, it's interesting. We have uh, in my treatment program in Austin, we had a, a young man recently who came from a very extreme um, right wing uh, views. And, you know, the people in his group and his treatment group were pretty diverse. And sometimes it's just interacting with people of different shapes and flavors that expands your paradigm and makes it makes for a sort of healthier um a healthier perspective uh, more open to understanding and being empathic towards other folks um, because again a lot of times people that go down ideological rabbit holes or pathways um they are in these echo chambers and so sometimes it's just a question of expanding their lens to be more open and then again, really beginning to say, what are your core values? Who are you at your core? And let's let's really do a rebuild essentially on how you see yourself and how mm. you see the world, because that's going to serve you better from a mental health standpoint, because right now you've created a narrative. You're living in a narrative that's toxic for you, toxic potentially for others. And how can we help you get to a better place where you've you've yeah. created a better identity for yourself that's more adaptive and healthier? Yeah. You know, something that you said earlier that I kind of want to hear you expound on, but I'll connect it to this uh, to, to this question, is you mentioned that you found that gaming or studies have found that gaming can actually prevent the parts of the brain that allow for empathy to kind of 
um, to be stunted. Those those that part of the brain doesn't really develop. I guess it's kind of like burning nerve endings. You can't you just can't feel it anymore. Um, so in a situation like this, if you've got someone who is addicted to gaming, do you take those things away? Like, are you in partnership with the parents to say, okay, we're detoxing from gaming, from phones, from you know this online world that he sucked into? Is that part of it? Absolutely. I mean, even for our clients that don't have a, a quote unquote gaming or tech issue, uh, my treatment program for two months, you know, you're, you're off of all of that because it's outside influences. You want to focus on the person, right? You want to focus on whatever their issues are. And so all those other things are at the very least they're a distraction, but at, at most they're shaping and, and impacting in ways that are very toxic. But we, we frame it as we don't want the distractions of phones and social media and gaming uh, and, and certainly for persons addicted to gaming, you know, they shouldn't go back to gaming. I mean, we do a whole, you know, we treat gaming addiction. So there's, we then help them do what's called a digital reentry plan where now what's a healthy use of technology that you can use moving forward, uh, researching something or, 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 um, gra- uh, zooming with grandma is a healthy use of technology. So we begin to identify digital vegetables versus digital candy and digital candy mm-hmm. are just those empty calories of candy crush world of warcraft gaming that that just is just bubblegum for the brain as opposed to technology in in service of research schoolwork um keeping in touch with family members those kinds of things and identifying the differences so we're saying not to never use technology again but what's what what are the flavors of technology that have been unhealthy for you and how do we help you stay off of those yeah Okay. Um, because I know that we need to, we need to go to respect your time. Can you just give a message to parents, parents of boys, particularly teenage boys? Um, like what's your advice to them? This is kind of like a scary time for them. They want to make sure that they are channeling that masculinity and natural aggression in ways that are healthy, but they just don't know what to do. So what are just some basic tips that you would give? parents of boys. And, and again, as the parent of 16 year old identical twin boys myself, yeah. I mean, I'm in the fight also. So again, it's, it's having healthy supports and, and it's, it's by healthy supports. I mean, get, get your kids busy and, and healthy activities because in the void and the vacuum of boredom, uh, there's a lot yeah. of other things that your kids can very quickly get seduced by. Um, and I've seen, you know, straight A students with who are athletes get sucked into toxic rabbit holes quickly. I mean, this could happen where your child changes in a matter of weeks to months. Mm. So um, it's it's get them involved in, in healthy activities, social organizations, sports, music, whatever that may be, and be aware of what they're digital, uh, what they're watching online, because it's like knowing who their friends are. You have to know who they're online with, because before you know it, uh, a few forays into 4chan, can lead to a lot of indoctrination that you may not be even aware that might be happening. So uh, I'm I'm all in favor for uh, knowing w- what your kid's digital world is because mm-hmm. that's the world that they're living in oftentimes, and and it is a scary time. So, uh, but as much as we can, I think we also have to be the parents and not be afraid to uh, talk about what values are and what it means to be a young man. Uh, character development doesn't get talked about a lot in mental health. I do talk about it a lot. What is the definition of character, ethics, values? Have those conversations with your kids and don't leave that void there to be filled in by ideological groups or university professors sometimes who may confuse your child into other all sorts of other up is down confusion mm-hmm. um, and and here we're talking about the gender issue as well yeah. if your if your child you know help them understand who they are um, in ways that are affirming genuinely affirming not in the orwellian phrase of gender affirming healthcare which is uh, such a such a toxic orwellian right concept. But anyway. Right. Dr. Cardaris, tomorrow we're going to play the um, the other part of the interview where we talk specifically about social media, that addiction. We talk about your books and things like that. So for all of that, people will have to tune in tomorrow. But I so appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about this tough subject. And thanks for the work that you do. I really appreciate it. And likewise, thank you for the work that you're doing, Allie. Much appreciated as well. 